0: world welcome back to another episode of the core consult rx podcast and today's episode is going to be pretty weird because not only is cole not here um which he doesn't even know we're recording this so sorry cole i feel really bad about that because this is kind of an improv thing um but i have two students with me on rotation and uh we're having sort of a makeshift day uh on this nice beautiful friday and uh we decided we're gonna do a topic discussion and look over a patient case and i was like you know what Let's record this thing instead. So uh, this is episode, I don't even know where I'm, 66 probably, coming at you in very laid back fashion. I'm with Ryan Rosenblatt and Amelia Fairbush. What's going on, y'all?
1: Hi.
2: (laughs) Hey there. Thanks for having me back.
0: Yes. Ryan, this is is a second episode for you, right? That's right. Yep. Plus you're on Instagram, so that's kind of like if you add all those together...
2: You're always on the Instagram with us live, so that's kind of like a full a full another episode. I think we're on the same schedule of when we want to get stuff done because it's usually, I like, I'm working on something, and then I'll notice, oh, Core Consult's live. Let's watch that and, and not I'll, do what I'm supposed to be. And that's
0: way more important than whatever you're supposed to be doing, obviously. Correct. Obviously. So uh, Ryan, give us some background, man. We haven't—I uh, don't think I really introduced you properly in the last episode, so this is, this is your second time on here. Might as well uh, give us some feedback. So,
2: just my personal life?
0: Yeah. No, well, <laughs> something that's important. So, <laughs> no, no. So, like, what? what to, where, where are you going after graduation? You guys are both fourth years, so give us some.
2: Yeah, sure. So I've been drawn to community pharmacy. I I started as a pharmacy technician and back in um, in Georgia, back in my hometown, and I uh, worked there for a couple years and thought, hey, this pharmacy job is a great idea. Let's see what school's like. And I applied around and got in a few places. But Charleston and MUSC was my top pick and I got in. So I ended up moving here um, back in 2016 when we started. And, you know, I didn't honestly know too much about what pharmacy was outside of community and retail. So it was really cool to go to MUSC at the Academic Medical Center and, and learn about that and have the opportunity to shadow different clinicians and MDs and whatnot. But still, at the end of the day, I, I'm still drawn to retail and community. Um, I really like counseling patients. Um, this community rotation that we're on with you is cool because it's in a clinic, and that's the reason I picked it besides hanging out with you most of the time. But the um, the community clinic setting is interesting and kind of a hybrid, and I really like that. But most likely, um, I do have a job right now um, at an independent pharmacy and another job with um, Publix Pharmacy. So I'm trying to see what happens after school. Um, Publix is a great company, but, uh, bottom line is I really want to be in retail and, um, and counsel patients. So you said,
0: uh, you like the community, um, setting, but you also like the clinic community clinic. Do you see yourself kind of eventually transitioning? Cause you've, you've spent a lot of time volunteering, um, at the clinic that I work at. That's how I met you originally before rotation. So do you see yourself kind of moving to that role eventually?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's where the profession's going. I think that the more academic, not academic, but the more kind of hands-on and 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 speaking with patients and understanding what um, what they what the reason they're not taking their medicine is or what the problems they're having with their medicines is where we can make a great impact. And it's not all about just selling prescriptions. Uh, I think a lot of automations coming. I think a lot of things with AI and and doing the drug interaction kind of stuff is coming. So I think pharmacists being on the clinical team and helping make choices that patients will agree with, you know, that shared decision-making. I think pharmacists are, are critical to that. And eventually I think that'll be where we go is pharmacists are able to to be on that team full-time instead of counting and verifying.
1: Yeah, especially with, like, the prevalence of... with the prevalence of um, chronic disease states. I think that's going to be a big role that pharmacists are playing.
0: For sure. So, Amelia, tell us what you're doing because yours is a little bit different path than most of us.
1: Yeah, um... My goal right now is I want to get involved in research, so hopefully if everything works out, um, I'm going to be getting my PhD after this, hopefully at MUSC um, with Dr. Wooster uh, to do drug discovery is the ultimate goal, Um, but I definitely want to keep some part of pharmacy in my future career, so I'm hoping to do something translational or at least have some aspect of clinical interaction as well as doing the... Basic science, like bench work. So
0: basically, after your first doctorate, then you're gonna get a second doctorate.
2: So that's cool, Ryan. What are you doing with your life? You know, D sounds great. That's that's a good one. Maybe I'll be like you and go for the BCPs at some point. Then I'll then I'll try to be I mean, like Amelia.
0: It, yeah, yeah. Amelia is on a whole different ball game. <laughs> it's a whole different level. Now that's cool. Um, I think it'd be uh, pretty awesome to do research as well. I just don't have. Uh, I'm too old to start going for a PhD at this point, I think.
1: You have to come see me in the lab.
0: <laughs> no, for sure. We'll do a uh, podcast from the lab. Just watch some drug discovery happen live. Um, all right. So, in this, and also, uh, I'm proud of Amelia because she was almost refusing to come on the podcast because she didn't want to do this, but...
1: Definitely not my natural element. <laughs> and I was
0: like, listen,
2: it's either this or you fail the rotation. <laughs> we kind of tricked her. We were like, we'll just have a topic discussion. The mics will be on. And now you're on the podcast.
0: Yeah. Uh, gotcha.
2: So... All right. So
0: like I said, we're gonna do a topic discussion. This is all stuff that most likely we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, I'm pretty sure we've covered all these you know, topics, but um, we're gonna do a patient case. And this is a pretty basic one, but it'll, uh, you know, just kind of, I guess, give us an opportunity to review some of the stuff we've already covered. So, you know, apologies if you're looking for the the new, new information, but this is definitely stuff that's important and, you know, again, stuff we've probably covered, but it's always good to review. So what we're going to talk about today, we have a 63-year-old female with diabetes, HFREF, and hypertension. So her ejection fraction is currently 30%, and her A1C is 89 for medications, she is on basal insulin, insulin glargine, Lantus, 36 units every morning, and she's taking pioglitazone, 45 milligrams. Um, she is also on lisinopril, 10 milligrams daily, HCTZ, 25 milligrams. Uh, daily metoprolol tartrate 50 milligrams BID and doxazosin 4 milligrams daily um, also for her hypertension um, as well she's not taking that for anything else Uh, simvastatin 20 milligrams kind of thrown on there for good measure and she's here for pharmacotherapy management Uh, and so we're going to go through and hopefully already you're just like, what is happening with this patient? Um, so this is a super basic case. We're not even going to go through like labs or anything like that. Um, we'll talk about things, you know, things we should watch out for, but I just basically want to touch on some things that we can uh, change and and improve on, um, based on her current medication regimen. So what would you guys want to start? Diabetes, HFF, one of those two, which one?
2: Uh, I think that the they're kind of coinciding with this a little bit, but the Hef-Ref is what's not, and the blood pressure is not controlled. I think that A1C of 8.9 is is going where we need to, but I think if we switch the medicines around, we'll get A1C lowering and, and possibly do some protection uh, for the cardio stuff.
1: Yeah, let's start with diabetes, the diabetes management.
2: Okay, sounds good.
0: All right, so... Um, diabetes management. So she's on insulin um, and our basal insulin and then P. Um, what right off the bat do you guys see is a problem with that regimen? P. Pioglitazone. P. Yep. So P. is contraindicated in patients with heart failure, and yet it's on her chart. So um, that would be a huge problem. Um, Ryan, will you walk us through kind of like the mechanism of action for the why that's problematic?
2: So Bottom line is the the P.O. cludisone is going to cause weight gain and edema. And so if you, it's from fluid retention. Mm -hmm. And so if you have that extra fluid on board, um, your heart's going to be working harder over time. um, That's not going to help your hypertension either and your heart will eventually go degrade into a heart failure situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's worsening the heart failure in this case too because um, you know she's already got most likely fluid retention and she's not even on anything at least listed for um, as-needed edema or anything like that. So it's going to continue to uh, push that ejection fraction lower because the heart's having to work harder further um, perpetuating the problem. So definitely uh, not good. P-glutazone needs to get out of here. Um, A1C is 8.9%. Um, So, you know, what would be the first thing we would want to add on to this patient? Um, Because, and this used to be a contraindication, actually, um, for our first line medication, but it's been removed. Um, So what would be something, especially since they're not having an exacerbation, not having contrast or anything like that, what would be the first line agent for someone with
2: diabetes? Metformin
0: metformin um that's across the board like whether you look at the ada the ace guidelines everybody kind of says metformin first line um, you guys i'm sure listening have all heard us me and cole talk about this it, you know at length of why we like metformin and all that um, but it, it, this patient actually um, is somebody that i would definitely kind of share some of that data with um, and i'm a big fan of this so a, a lot of people i think feel like you can't You save the clinical trials, you save the evidence-based medicine, you know, talk for other healthcare professionals, other, um, you know, providers, whatever it is, and, you know, you wouldn't really talk about data with patients, but I'm actually kind of the opposite side. I think that it's important to talk about data, and I think people actually like the term study, Um, you know, if you look on, like you know, social media and things like that. Even if it's nonsense that that's being posted, usually it's like, oh, a study finds blah, 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 blah. Well, people will click on that because it's, oh, a study. That means scientists have been looking at it and it's, scientists it's real. Scientists now say. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So people like studies. And so I actually use um, a study in the data from that study to convince people to go on metformin. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about metformin out there, um, and there's people that um, maybe have tried in the past and have had GI side effects but don't want to go back you know, on the medication. So this is something that I use quite a bit, and it's the data from the HOME trial. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about this in the podcast. I, I know I have it a couple times probably. Um, but what the home trial did is it basically took patients who were on insulin um, and then added either metformin or placebo. Um, the primary endpoint they were looking for was this composite of mi- microvascular and macrovascular morbidity and mortality. Um, and at the end of the study, they found no difference, which was kind of surprising. Um, we know that they're... Is some benefit with with various outcomes from like the UK PDS study where they added metformin Mm -hmm. um, to diet in patients who were obese and uh, saw some benefits. So they were kind of surprised that when you added insulin, there was no difference. So they looked at the secondary outcomes, and that's where we started to see the benefit of metformin. So it actually decreased macrovascular events um, in patients that were already on insulin, Um, so much so that the number needed to treat was only 17. And so when you took out microvascular, um, looking at the neuropathy, nephropathy, retinopathy, all those fun things, um, take that out of the equation and look at just like MI and stroke, that's when we start to see the benefit. Um, Also, the the patients who were on metformin saw up to a 19-unit-per-day reduction in their insulin requirement. And so... They were trying. the The point of the study was to kind of look at the, the cardiovascular events. So they were actually trying to keep these patients A1Cs state like similar. They were trying to match the A1Cs, which is why they kept going down on the insulin dose. And even with them titrating down on the dose, they still saw a zero point four percent reduction in A1C, even though they weren't trying to get there. Um, And then one of the long-term adverse effects of insulin, obviously, is weight gain. And there was about a 3-kilogram weight difference between the two groups, Um, the less weight obviously being in the patients that were taking metformin. So I I lay it out in very simple terms, but just kind of talk about all the different benefits. You know, if a patient's on 50 units, you know, whatever the number of units are per day of insulin, be like, hey, you know, there's been people that have gone down almost 20 units of their insulin because of metformin you know if they're worried about gi side effects talking about the um, the different uh, extended release formulations that we have available and that that can help talking about taking it with food talking about starting the dose really low and titrating up there's so many different things you can do to kind of sell metformin um but then also addressing any concerns there's other things that have come out like um, talking about liver problems or kidney problems and and addressing those concerns of patients and ensuring them that uh, it's one of our most studied drugs at this point for diabetes, and across the board with all the expert panels and guidelines that it's it's first line unless it's specifically contraindicated. So as long as this patient's kidneys are okay, you know above thirty, and um, you know it used to be uh, heart failure was a contraindication, but they've removed that. Um, Sense And so heart failure in this patient um, wouldn't be a contraindication. So this would be something that we could consider um, metformin um,
2: in so this patient. With the interesting thing is the dose of the metformin was 850 milligrams just once a day. Is that correct?
0: I believe they could titrate up to three times a up day, times. which oh, is yeah. where if you look at the, we always go to 2000 milligrams yeah. of metformin, but technically speaking, you can do um, 2550 milligrams of metformin a day. So um, that's, like, considered the max dose, but we usually stop at 2,000. Um, so metformin would definitely be an option. Um, the other thing that's interesting, too, is if we look at the new ADA guidelines, the newest 2019 um, guidelines, you'll see that the, the breakdown for diabetes treatment is based on, you know, whether or not the patient has um, other comorbidities. And so specifically speaking, if the patient has... Um, heart failure or CKD um, and they're already taking metformin as first line, they kind of give you a target as far as what next line treatment you should, should use. Um, And then that's been pretty helpful, but also um, it's based on all the different cardiovascular outcome trials that have come out now over the last uh, two years or so and um, given us a lot more insight into what to use second line. And so this patient is already on basal insulin, um, but, you know, if, if we want to keep them on that, we definitely can. But, you know, just algorithmically speaking, um, after metformin, we would have very clear guidance as far as which medications to use next. Um, One of you all want to take the lead on what we would do next?
1: Um, I have a question yeah. first as well. When would we ever use a TZD? Like, I only really see them in the instance of us taking people off them. So is there any reason that you would specifically choose to put a patient on that medication?
0: On a TZD? Yeah. So if you look at the new ADA guidelines, like their algorithm, the one that kind of sticks out, um, TZD would be in the either TZD or sulfonylurea as far as like second line options would be in patients who cost is a major issue. Mm -hmm. Um, They are very cheap. And they do lower some A1C, but we just have to worry about a lot of side effects. So if a patient literally can't afford the new medications, which, you know, the clinic that we've been working at has that issue in some patients. So we see more sulfonylureas Definitely. being used um, in some TCDs, more than we would want to. However, in some patients, you just don't have a choice. If they can't afford it, they can't afford it. Um, so that's really, for me anyway, the only patient population that I would really try to aim for um, using one of those agents is patients who just literally can't afford anything else.
1: Yeah, but then even with that, I feel like I would personally have a preference for a sulfonylurea, but I'm not sure why I think that. I mean, I guess it's just that the side effects of the TCDs are so bad, but is there any reason you would choose, like, what would be a side effect of a sulfonylurea that would cause you to choose a TZD over one?
0: Hypoglycemia is a little bit more prevalent Hypoglycemia. with uh, sulfonylurea. Okay. And so that, especially in elderly patients, um, you know, would be a concern. But again, like TZDs, we're worried about um, potential increased, you know, bone mineral density loss, a fracture risk. Um, yeah. We would be worried about, um, you know, like uh, the obviously the heart failure is a, con- is a concern. Um, and then, you know, there's a possible concern with like um, bladder cancer in males um, that may or, not, may or may not be there um, th- there's just a whole bunch of serious adverse effects that you know we'd have to consider but yeah so do have a high prevalence of um, hypoglycemia. hypoglycemia and so you know the big one to stay away from would be glimepiride. that's mm-hmm. got the most uh, acc- the strongest occurrence of hypoglycemia but glipizide and glimepiride both can also do it so uh, you just have to weigh out the options and make it patient specific. Yeah, we would probably see sulfonamides used more frequently though. Yeah. Go ahead, Ron.
2: What do you I say? I was just gonna start walking down the algorithm with the fact that there's two currently SGLT2 inhibitors that are the evidence-based ones for heart failure and well ASCVD outcomes, which is the empagliflozin jardiance and the canagliflozin uh, in Vulcana. Um so that, those are the two that I would probably look at first for this patient depending on insurance opportunities or if they could get it covered in another way. Um, and so that's where I think we should head if if the uh, if they could afford it. But I think it's great to bring up that if they didn't have insurance or something, we could talk about the sulfonylureas.
1: What side effects would you be concerned about?
2: Go ahead, Ryan. Take, take it away. Uh, there's... Uh, <laughs> well, so there's... The first one that kind of was the red flag and we weren't sure if it was a class effect or not, I don't believe it's been proven to be, but the, um, there's an increased risk with invocana with um, amputations. Uh, so that, that originally kind of steered people towards the Jardians, but now there's been a recent development where there's this terrible, you can get a terrible um, basically urinary tract infection that develops into Fournier's gangrene, which is very terrible, do not Google. Um, but basically that's a very serious uh, condition that has been associated with um, SGLT2 inhibitors and so that's something to be on your radar uh, especially I think it was worse in men Um, so we got the we got that kind of on our radar but I think that I don't think the incidence was too high, but it's one of those things that's kind of shocking when you when you find out that and I guess it makes a little bit of sense because there is an increased risk of UTIs in um, both sexes with uh, with those because think about the mechanism of action. You're you're ending up spilling more glucose into the urine, which can be a food source for some kind of infection or some kind of infectious um, bacterium. bacterium. Okay. So that's maybe where that's related to. That's speculation. But I would hope that someone would say something if they saw basically a gangrene, everyone's aware yeah. of that. Or at least,
1: yeah, making sure that your patients are aware that that is a rare but pretty serious side effect.
2: Yeah,
0: I think it's been, I want to say it's less than 100 patients, but still that's a, a lot of patients that have um, had case reports of that happening. I know, um, toward I think 55 unique cases were presented up until um January 31st, 2019, but I believe there's been more since then reported. And for those of you who are not familiar, you know, Fournier's gangrene is, is necrotizing fasciitis of the uh, perineum or the genitals. So it is no good, and it has uh, cost some people their lives. And so um, definitely something to, to consider. Um, basically, you know, if a patient is experiencing symptoms, you know, redness, tenderness, swelling um, of the genitals, especially if they have a fever, um, they need to make sure that they report those pretty quickly because it is treatable but you need to go and Catch get it, it treated. Likely, yeah. Yeah. Um, And Ryan, you brought up a good point as far as the mechanism of action. You know, the SGLT2s, they are... Taking your basically your body is able to to reabsorb glucose up to you know around 180 to 200 or so milligrams of deciliter um, of glucose in the urine and reabsorb that and it basically just lowers that threshold and so you it's dropping it all the way down to around 100 or so um, maybe even less and uh, you know so it's greatly ex- increasing how much glucose you're excreting um, which is is a very interesting. Um, Mechanism of action—it's kind of you know a, a new way that we've been treating diabetes, um, but also seems to be um, a way of getting excess fluid off off the body, um, which kind of can be why we're seeing some of this potential heart failure benefit in these patients. If you're excreting excess volume, um, then you're potentially reducing some of the stress on the heart. And uh, if you look at the first one that had outcome data was Jardians, um, with the Impareg outcomes study. Um, that one showed, um, specifically looking at heart failure hospitalizations, um, it was a decrease in hospitalizations due to heart failure, and um, the number needed to treat was 71, um, and also had a decrease in cardiovascular mortality by number needed to treat of 45. So uh, that was kind of the first one that we had that uh, gave us some... Some insight as to maybe this is a good option for patients with heart failure um, the downside of that and we'll talk about the other agents in a second but the downside of that is when you are allowing the person to be volume down um, perforation of the tissue also decreases and uh, that's where we have seen an increase in amputation risk with one of the agents, um, Invacana specifically. Um, we are not 100% sure whether or not it's a class effect or not, um, but mechanistically speaking, it makes sense if you are volume down, you're not getting the same perforation, um, perforation of the uh, um, the blood's not able to, to perfuse the tissues enough, then you could potentially get a... Um, death to the, to the tissue and amp- in, increasing amputation risk and uh, while most of the amputations were like the the toe it wasn't the whole leg um, okay, they did yeah. see um, an increase in amputation as they called it below the knee um, that was significant and that was specifically within McCkana and the canvas trial um, but the canvas trial also did show um, positive outcomes for the cardiovascular uh, endpoints as well Um it seemed to be driven by heart failure hospitalizations, which is which is kind of what we're looking for. Um, but the primary composite was significant, um, but that's uh, definitely um, heart failure hospitalizations was a driving factor in that, I believe. Um, and then I uh, will go ahead and mention um, the the newest one is the Declare Timmy trial. Um, that one is something that um, was was shown um, with Farziga. Uh, they were trying to also show that it had cardiovascular benefit, um, and unfortunately, the only thing that was significantly different in that one um, was the reduced hospital heart failure hospitalizations. So, no overall um, risk of cardiovascular events, but it wasn't it wasn't superior either. So, compared to placebo, so um, we got to kind of keep that one in mind. That that one may or may not. Help with cardiovascular data. So I think right now, Jardiance is uh, probably our best option, um, and then our newest uh, newest agents, the Glottro. We don't have the data with that one yet. And I'm checking uh, myself on this Canvas trial because I want to make sure that I said that right. That it was the being driven by. Yeah, hospitalization for heart failure was the one but it was a number needed to treat of 250 um, was the secondary endpoint um, but the primary endpoint was significantly different um, as far as cardiovascular death fatal MI, non fatal stroke um, all that uh, but the number needed to treat was around 200 so it's a much less in the Jardians study empiric outcomes um, one thing I will mention that I don't know if we've mentioned on the podcast or not but the uh, Credence trial came out in April of this year, um, and Credence was kind of showing that the uh, the the nephro um, protection uh, abilities of these drugs. We've seen that with some secondary analysis of the Impereg outcomes trial, but uh, Credence now was looking at um, basically uh, this. Um, Composite of end-stage kidney disease, doubling of the creatinine level, or death from renal causes, um, it was 34% lower in the patients that were taking uh, invocana. And so, you know, the other thing is there was in this specific trial there was no difference um, in the. I take that back. Maybe I, I got to double check myself on the amputation risk. I want to say there was no difference, but there actually may have been. Um. So hold that. Hold me. Don't hold me to that one yet. But we will uh, go I'll, back.
2: I'll pull it up once. Okay, I
0: cool. Um, but there was a quote from the uh, National Kidney Foundation uh, because one of the thought processes, is if this can actually um, really reduce the effects of or the worsening of CKD, and, and is truly really this nephro protective, um, you know, it could be something that we could start start studying in patients that do not have diabetes um, because in theory you wouldn't be able to you'd have a little bit of chance of hypoglycemia but not like you would with insulin or some of our other agents and so just like a GLP-1 being used for weight loss like with um, sexenda and liraglutad this may be an option that we can use in non-diabetic patients to help uh, with their CKD and so the National Kidney Foundation said um, in April that if this supplemental indication is approved by the FDA that it would be the first new treatment for diabetic kidney disease in decades and so now the kind of the race is on to see if we can study it in patients that don't have diabetes or um, have uh, GFR less than 30. Um, One of the things that the Credence trial did show too was that the A1C of lowering effects really diminish when you get to creatinine clearances around 30 Um, and so we know that the A1C effects is kind of what we we're originally looking for. Um, that doesn't seem to be there, but the nephroprotection is still there. So that's where the idea of maybe when you're treating patients with CKD, they don't even have to have diabetes. We can still use this and get some benefit. So, um, and yeah, it says uh, no difference in rates of amputation. Yeah, sorry, it took me. You're so fast. So, um, yeah. So maybe the amputation risk was just kind of a a fluke with, um, the, uh, the canvas trial, but it definitely makes sense mechanistically. So,
1: yeah.
0: um, all right. We talked about all those, um, w- you know, the, uh, GLP ones we've talked about at great length. And, um, and I think that, uh, we don't really necessarily need to go into that because they don't have as much heart failure data that we can use. But no, if it's if it's just ASCVD that we're worried about, then um, definitely uh, GLP one would be something that we're looking at going. All right, um, for diabetes, I mean, anything else you guys want to mention for that?
2: No. Not specifically.
1: Yeah, nothing immediately jumps off the page that would need to be changed other than that.
2: I think that's a good place to start. See, I guess they should See set an A1C goal, um, 63 with heart failure. Uh, I guess under 8 would probably be appropriate, uh, 8%. So yeah. that would be, you could probably get there with the with the Invin large audience mm-hmm. um, combined and if with we're Metformin, metformin as well. So yeah. I think that should be the first step, uh, minimize those. Microvascular complications that could be arising being above eight percent, but with life expectancy unsure, I would I would not push it too much lower. Yeah, for sure.
1: Y'all think so? I'm i always so confused about that because sixty three doesn't seem like it's that old, you know. Well, like, sixty three
0: with heart failure and diabetes um, may not. So the the way I like the American College of Physicians, um, their guidelines for diabetes, they actually say if the person has a ten year or less life expectancy that you don't even necessarily need an A1c goal you just want to treat for symptom relief yeah so I would say that if you kind of look at the ADA guidelines versus those you know I think somewhere in the middle is yeah. probably pretty accurate so like Ryan said maybe going less than eight maybe 7.5 if the person can tolerate it but as of right now none of their heart failure medications are optimized either so life expectancy probably, probably wouldn't be more than bad, like five or yeah. six years. Yeah. especially with an injection fraction already at 30, it's probably less than that.
1: That makes sense. Um,
0: so we would really need to optimize the heart failure medications. Um, the uh, the great Dr. Wirt um, was just showing, sharing a study with us on this uh, cruise we went on um, where they looked at heart failure um, patients and s- to see who was optimized on their regimen. And it was like 1% of patients being treated by cardiology um, or fa- family medicine um, was actually optimized on their medications for That's heart crazy. failure. So when patients are not optimized, they have a very low life expectancy or, or uh, survival rate each, yeah. you know, for a period of time anyway. So, something to, uh, we need to definitely address. But, um, you know, if the first thing that pops into my mind is one, the patient's ACE or ARB, um, is not optimized at all. Um, and
1: they're still hypertensive.
0: Still hypertensive. So the pearl, 10 milligrams is a very wimpy dose of lesinopril. And we do want to be treating to a target dose of all these medications. So if you were going to keep them on an ACE, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, for instance, like the ATLAS trial compared the 5 to 10 milligrams of lesinopril um, compared to 35 milligrams of lisinopril, and the 35 milligrams was superior. And so, you know, we would want to optimize the dose of lisinopril and, and titrate up as long as the person can tolerate it. So, you know, we're monitoring potassium. We're monitoring for um, acute renal injury. You know, we're looking for some of the, the warning signs of, of adding an ACE or increasing an ACE, but we want to optimize that goal and make sure that the dose is going as high as possible because that's where our outcome data actually comes from. So we would want to move this person up to 40 milligrams a daily, um, daily with less Sinopril if possible. Um, and then the other thing would be if a patient needed to be switched um, to a different medication, which, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked about Entresto on this podcast before, but Entresto, um, if you're not familiar with it still, it's and uh which is a naprolyacin inhibitor, and Valsartan. And it's a fused molecule, so it's not a true, like, Compound medication, it's it's a fused molecule, so it's 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 own thing, and um, it it was compared directly to enalapril um, in the paradigm HF trial, and so. It was significantly um, better than Enalapril for uh, treating um, heart failure patients with an ejection fraction, I believe, of less than 35. Um, And it was superior for heart failure exacerbations and our hospitalizations and um, for mortality. So, definitely uh, seems to be a uh, better option. Um, However, you have to make sure the patient's blood pressure can handle it, um, and you would really want to uh, watch for angioedema, um, as well as increase in potassium and some of the other things we'd watch out for with an Acer arm. Um, If you were going to switch this person to Entresto, we would have to have a 36-hour washout period um, of the lisinopril to allow that to get out of the person's system before we started Entresto which that's the part that's super important. Um, I think I've shared this story before, but I've actually seen uh, when I was working in retail, um, there was a patient who, when Intrista first came out, the computer wasn't blocking the interactions, and I was actually just happened to be in that pharmacy to get something printed. I was working in the back office, and I, the pharmacist was asking me about the drug and stuff, and so I told them to make sure you cap that, the patient said they were still on an Allopril, And uh, so we put a consult on there and um, the pharmacist called me a few days later and said, hey, uh, just I want to let you know that um, I talked to that patient and uh, it was actually the patient's wife. And they said that, um, you know, I told them about the warning and everything. She said, well, we actually just got back from the hospital because he was given samples at the clinic, never was told to stop the ACE inhibitor and had angioedema. And, you know, this is a drug that's contraindicated in someone who has a history of angioedema. So now you've got a real dilemma there of was it the ACE-ARNI, as they call in Trusto, combo, or was it truly just a patient had angioedema? Um, you know, do you re, re-attempt to start that or technically by, you know, indications you shouldn't? So you potentially took away a drug from a person that has very good um, outcome data away from a patient that uh, could have used it. So, um, That's
2: unfortunate for sure.
0: Washout period. Very important.
1: 36 hours.
0: 36 hours. 36 hours. Um, the other question that will come up is what happens if the person does have angioedema and on an ACE inhibitor? So you can't use an RNA. So you can't use Entresto. Um But what about an ARB? Because we also have outcome data with an ARB. You can use an ARB. So if you look at the guidelines, they do say that you can use an ARB in patients who are contraindicated to use an ACE inhibitor, even if that contraindication is... Uh, angioedema and that data comes from a few different places but one of the biggest trials was the uh, Charmed alternative Um, it was looking at candesartan in patients who could not tolerate an ACE and there were 40 patients in that study who had um, angioedema listed as the reason they couldn't tolerate an ACE and at the end of the study 39 were completely fine when they switched to candesartan. one of the patients I think they thought was having angioedema but he ended up being fine but they had already Taking them out of the study.
1: Is there like a washout period from switching to an ACE to an ARB?
0: I think that one would just be.
1: You can just switch. Yeah.
0: And the the concern with the Entristo or the ARNI is the Cucubitrol because that's the naprolycin inhibitor. When the naprolycin is being inhibited, you're not breaking down things like bradykinin and all that. And so the increased risk of angioedema is because of that, not because of the Velsartin component of yeah. the of the interest. Of, so technically switching from an ACE to an ARB wouldn't be the same risk as switching from an ACE to an ARNI.
1: Yeah. Which it's kind of crazy. I was looking at some of the trials where they were using ACEs and ARBs together Yeah, and like they had, I mean, it was decent outcomes. Obviously we know now that that's not ideal given the medications that we like having spironolactone and stuff, but um, I guess...
0: Yeah, and well, and there's a, one of the arms of the charmed, um, charmed added, yeah, yeah, added the yeah, two that's together, what it was, yeah. and they did. They had some positive outcomes, but they also had a lot of adverse effects. And so they, yeah. like you said, they have better options. So the guidelines don't recommend using uh, the two together. Yeah. but yeah, you can. I mean, there's people that try it.
1: Yeah, I was just kind of crazy because I feel like we learn always like no aces and arms together, which ideally we wouldn't. But yeah. it's kind of interesting to see the actual data.
0: For sure.
2: Yeah, the I just pulled up the Charmed added. It was a number needed to harm of 37 for hyperkalemia doing the combo. Yeah. Yikes. 3.5% um, thir- versus less than 1% incidence of hyperkalemia. And then the other one increased uh, creatinine was number needed to harm of 27 doing the combo. So definitely not the best option.
1: Yeah. Which wait, So when we start in ACE, what is it we expect to see a 10% increase in creatinine?
0: Yeah, t- expect to see a 10%, worry when we see a 30%.
1: Worry when we see 30%. From
0: baseline. to 10, yeah. So, okay. so it doesn't, they don't have a cutoff as far as what that baseline is, but whatever their baseline is, 30% is when we stop and then okay. reevaluate. It's usually due to um, dehydration or something like that. But we would, you know, reassess at that point. All right, so let's say we optimize Ace Arbor Arnie, first line. Um, what's next for our failure?
1: Let's do the metoprolol.
0: Okay, so what's wrong so with metoprolol tartrate?
1: They are currently on metoprolol tartrate uh, 50 milligrams twice a day. And um, tartrate wasn't the one that was studied, so we would want to do succinate um, once a day. I think it's 100 milligrams once a day, 200? Two, 200 was the MERIT-HF trial. Gotcha. Um, and then if we didn't want to do metoprol succinate, we could do carvedilol okay. or labetalol.
0: So labetalol doesn't have outcome data, but it does have the same mechanism of action as carvetalol. So it's an alpha-beta blocker. So we just don't have the same outcome data. So technically it wouldn't be evidence-based, but I don't necessarily know that that's wrong. Okay.
1: Um,
0: What is the other one, though, that actually has outcome data besides metoprolol, succinate, and carvetalol?
1: Okay, so it wasn't labetalol. It was, um, oh, don't tell me, don't tell me.
0: Okay. (laughs) We're in Um, real time here, folks starts with a B. Bisoprolol. Yeah. So bisoprolol. All right. So that's good. So how, how would you decide between one of those three is the next big question? COPD. Okay. So which one, if somebody had COPD, which one would you pick?
1: Bisoprolol.
0: Okay. Why?
1: Because it is more selective for beta one and we want to avoid all beta two if possible.
0: Yeah, and there's actually a study that they compared patients with heart failure and COPD and showed that there was a benefit um, with esoprolol over carvedilol and metoprolol succinate. There was a decrease, I believe it was a decrease in hospitalizations due to COPD, so exacerbations. Um, and then what about, what's another thing that we would look for? If, like, let's say the person just has heart failure, and how would you differentiate between using one of those three?
1: Uh, carvedilol is going to have a bigger effect on hypertension.
0: Yes. So that's the big thing, that the big take-home is... Um, Beta alpha beta blockers because you're blocking both alpha and beta receptors because if you just block the beta receptors, then you know norepinephrine still has to bind somewhere and so if you get alpha activity in especially in the periphery, you're going to get vasoconstriction over time. Which if total peripheral resistance goes up, then obviously you could eventually start increasing the blood pressure over time as well. So the thought is that carvedilol is going to give you a lot better. Um, blood pressure lowering. So if you listed the patient that was already technically controlled, um but you know you wanted to still optimize the beta blocker because that's you know we know we know what can prevent outcome, negative outcomes. Um then we would want to use the metoprolol or bisoprolol options and if the patient needed like this patient needs further you know blood pressure lowering, carvedilol would probably be a good option. Okay. Um now, metoprolol tartrate was studied head to head with carvedilol in the COMET trial, and so the big issue with that though is the person that this person is actually on metoprolol tartrate fifty milligrams, and they're taking the medication that was studied in COMET. Um, but like uh, Amelia said, metoprolol succinate two hundred milligrams was studying, studied in studied uh, in. Marin HF, and that's the one that has the outcome data. And so the metoprolol tartrate 50 milligrams twice a day is not the same dose of the succinate 200 milligrams. Um, in theory, you'd need about 150 milligrams of tartrate total daily in order to get to the 200 milligram succinate dose. Um, the higher dose of the ER would be needed because it's going to be chewed up by Sip two D six longer, and so you need longer uh, or more of the drug to get through that first pass metabolism in order to get absorbed. Um, so metoprolol tartrate one hundred and fifty daily would be, you know, you know, however you get that whether it's fifty milligrams three times a day or seventy five milligrams twice a day, however you get there, one hundred and fifty total daily would be about two hundred milligrams succinate equivalent. Um, so we would want to optimize the beta blocker. Um, what would be the next agent that we could add on for heparin?
1: Um, we could do an aldosterone antagonist, so spironolactone or aplerenin.
0: Yeah. So, um, plurinone, those two are, you know, aldosterone antagonists, like you said. And also if you think about it, kind of like for even blood pressure lowering, that's like the next step on the RAS system, right? So if you're blocking the first part of the RAS system, um, that angiotensin one to angiotensin two, um, the next step is aldosterone production. So if we're also blocking that, then we are, uh, kind of inhibiting that whole system. Um, so the, the big thing to consider with, Spernalatone is, you know, we we have the outcome data with both. So we have with, we have rails trial with Spernalatone showing, um, reduction in events with, uh, HefRef. And then we also have, um, Ephesus and em- emphasis with a plurinone, um, is a lot cheaper and in this patient, you know, that wouldn't really make a difference. Um, but Spernalatone does have the same chemical structure as estrogen, And so in males, we do see instances of like gynecomastia, things like that, which are not ideal. And uh, so we would need to make sure that we are monitoring for that and monitoring potassium as well because potassium is going to be, it's a potassium sparing diuretic. So we need to watch the potassium, make sure it's not above five when we start it. Mm -hmm. Ryan, you said you look like you want going to say something.
2: Well, I was just, you said monitoring for gynecomastia. Is that like a self-reported? isn't and isn't it permanent so it's kind of like yeah, a too and, little and I, too late thing
0: yeah and I should I shouldn't say monitoring I should say patients I guess maybe at risk patients that you want to have that discussion um, and then if you know the process started you could always stop it at that point um, you definitely would want to at least warn the patient of it instead of just
1: shared decision making yeah <laughs> shared decision
0: making um but yeah that that would definitely patient be centered care yeah. <laughs> Definitely be a good option, um, and that's kind of the the three main agents. So we'd see ACE, Arbor, or ARNI, and then optimized beta blocker, and then an optimized aldosterone antagonist.
1: And that was sort of where um, we stopped using the um, Aces and ARBs together. Is when we started getting data back for the the aldosterone antagonist and realizing these are much better and have fewer side effects. Right. So that's when that sort of for changed
0: sure. Absolutely. And so, you know, there are some other agents like the, um, the isosorbide dinitrate, hydralazine combo, (laughs) um, by um, you can, uh, use, and that, that data is with African Americans, but, um, you know, they extrapolate that to, you know, other races as well. Um, there's also some data with corlinor or Ivabradine, um, uh, with the SHIFT trial that showed a decrease in exacerbations, um, hospitalizations but not mortality uh and the the big thing with ivabradine is is basically if somebody was already optimized on a beta blocker or for whatever reason could not take a beta blocker and you needed to lower the heart rate you could use ivabradine in that case because it's going to work on the sa channel uh, or sa node rather um and it's going to work on the if channel of the sa node and so it's going to decrease Heart rate by a different mechanism than beta receptors, um, but there's no al- there's no mortality benefit to it. So it's a very expensive drug, and not very many people would be a candidate.
1: And for the hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate, I think that that was something you could use if they weren't able to tolerate an and ARB. I think um, uh, was when that might come into play is if you weren't able to put them on a more evidence based medicine.
0: I'm thinking it was an add-on, but let me double check. Ryan, where are you at? You're supposed to have this
2: already Googled and ready to go. Yeah, hey, I'm almost there. <laughs> I didn't that's a very specific question. That
1: is very um, specific. I also don't have any reference for that. That just was in my head for some reason, so I trust it. I'll try to fact check myself.
0: A heft trial summer, let me pull it up. I got it somewhere. Um t- 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 so patients who self identified as African-American um, may have... Uh, I think they were already on.
2: It says randomized to Bidil or placebo stratified according to use or non-use of background beta blockers. Okay. So then...
0: Hmm. Um, so it's basically... Um, the, the the recommendations for the heart failure recommendations is that um, you would you could use this um, in patients that uh, they specifically say African American patients with FRF, um who are on ACE inhibitors beta blockers um, unless contraindicated and then or who cannot tolerate an ACE or ARB then you can consider using nitrate and hydralazine combo.
2: That's from ACA. the
0: AHA, AHA. ACCF. Um so yeah the uh, and i think the, here's the baseline um so 70 percent of the patients in that study were on were taking a uh, ace so beta blocker 74 percent. so they were on a lot of these agents so it was definitely an, an added on um agent so a um good we're handling things in real time
2: well, this is what happens this is
0: what happens when you wing it
2: <laughs> you're no you're in the clinic you get a patient you got to figure it out
0: Um, You know, looking back at the patient's medication list, um, the HCTZ, definitely not really helping us in this situation. Um, It's a trash drug for hypertension, especially in heart failure. So I would think with what we're already optimizing, we probably don't need that anyway. Um, So we can probably just get rid of that. And um, doxazosin.
1: So y'all say say doxazosin as opposed to doxazosin. I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and I've been hearing mixed results. Well,
0: let's hear your thoughts on Amelia. Okay. This is important. Let's stop it. Let's stop it. Very important.
1: Very important discussion. So same thing for prazosin or prazosin, Hmm. right? It's true. So I I was going to swear by prazosin. Um, mm-hmm. but Lexicomp, you know, have, they have that little thing where you can play how they think you should pronounce yeah. it. They say prazosin, hmm. World changing. Yeah.
0: I usually thing think about Lexicomp. <laughs> I don't like them. It's run by the mafia. It is. It is a drug mafia. So <laughs> no, I, um, sure. We'll say What is it? Doxizo- Doxazoson. Doxazoson. I'm not saying and that. Doxazoson. That's what I'm sticking <laughs> to it. Um, I'm in charge. So I stay. I stay <laughs> say it's pronounced that way. I second Oof, How dare you? Shut down. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So however you pronounce that drug, um, for those of you familiar with the all hat trial, um, remember that was comparing an ACE calcium channel blocker and a thiazide diuretic, which they used clophthalodone, not HCTZ. Um, they uh, also had a fourth arm, which was doxazosin. <laughs> um, and uh, that actually was stopped early for a occurrence of heart failure in patients. So... If, the thought is that you actually could get some fluid retention um, with doxazosin and uh, worsen the the problem um, of heart failure. So this patient would not be a good candidate. And realistically speaking, unless you're like on your sixth or seventh line agent for hypertension, doxazosin probably isn't a good option for that either.
1: I also only ever really see prazosin or prazosin.
0: And I've seen that for like PTSD, Same. Um, seen yeah. it for like Raynaud's Phenomenon, a couple of other things. Ooh, I didn't
1: know that. Um, that's
0: but that's really only the uh, times that I would see that. Yeah.
2: So we didn't, we we said we would start in um, probably spinal lactone or another aldosterone antagonist. Are we keeping the HCTZ?
0: No. We
2: hate it. It's garbage. It out.
0: So the other thing is HCTZ is going to increase the uh, glucose reabsorption as well. So we would probably benefit by getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if we did need to keep a thiazide diuretic, I would vote for clothalidone or adapamide since those are our evidence-based thiazides.
2: With the blood pressure being so far above goal, what about something like amlodipine or another second-line blood pressure agent?
0: So we could consider amlodipine. It's not going to give us any benefit for HefRef, but it would. it's okay to use in HefRef as long as we're using the dihydroperidine calcium channel blockers, not the non-dihydro. Um, but the peridine calcium channel blockers we can use in HefRef if we need further blood pressure lowering only, but we can't expect any additional like mortality benefit or anything like that.
1: So we would want to titrate or not tartrate, titrate um, lisinopril up before we would consider that. So
0: especially if we're thinking of doing lisinopril, beta blocker, and spironolactone, we're probably, because the HTTZ is probably not doing anything anyway, but... Um, very much so, anyway. Dr. Zosin, eh, garbage. So those two, you know, I, I think that if we get rid of those and replace them with better agents, and we're increasing the uh, ACE or ARB um, or giving them Entresto, then I think that we're going to be golden as far as blood pressure.
2: That's true. I kind of forgot about Carvedilol, so probably wouldn't jump to jump the gun. We
0: would just need to monitor. We would bring this person back pretty frequently until sure. they were controlled. Give them the VIP treatment, <laughs> as we say at the clinic. Yeah.
2: Um every Friday. We'll see you next Friday.
0: See you next Friday. <laughs> but uh, you know, the other thing is the ACE. Um obviously this person uh would most likely be a candidate depending on what their lipids are, but for a high intensity statin, simvastatin is uh, you know, whatever, but kind of trash. And um <laughs> a lot of drug drug interactions. So if nothing else, just based on the diabetes alone, you know, a torva ten um would be the evidence-based uh, moderate intensity. Um, and then, if we needed something high intensity, which we most likely would based on their labs and um, ASCVD risk score, then we would probably want to get them uh, a Torva 80 is the most evidence based that we have.
1: You said it was a Torva 10 for moderate?
0: So, for moderate with just diabetes, um, a Torva 10 that comes from the uh, CARDS trial where they compared diabetes patients to that uh, were a primary prevention. So, unless this person had like a, if they've already had an event that's it's automatic high intensity um, but we would want to see their lipid labs and calculate ASCVD risk and all that and kind of see where they're at um, yeah. most likely they would be a candidate for high intensity though so yeah 40 or 80 and I'd go right to 80 it's the most evidence-based atorva dose I agree Ryan probably would pick 40 when you Ryan <laughs> how dare you They're smaller they are smaller Ryan. it's not it's not about how big the tablet is okay <laughs> just take it with yogurt you'll be fine <laughs> Sugar free yogurt
2: in yeah, this case. Sugar free yogurt. Or that um that i had one of those for breakfast. The two goods. Sorry, I don't wanna
0: No, this is this is vital information. Yeah, Go so ahead. I, it's uh <laughs> Please.
2: it's Greek yogurt, uh-huh. many flavors. What? Two grams of carbs.
0: Unbelievable. Nice. How many grams of protein? Do you feel full afterwards? Fiber? I, 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 including fiber.
1: Greek yogurt's got some got a decent bit of protein. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. of no yeah.
2: protein. No fiber, I bet. Shout out. Unbelievable. <laughs> shout shout out too good yogurt sponsor me I'm
0: trying to get a sponsorship deal and it's only a second episode I like it very entrepreneurial of you um, alright so anything else with this patient we could go on all day about this stuff but we've been talking for an hour already really it's really. been an hour yeah
2: well, I'm gonna have to edit this out
0: no, what are you talking about? I'm editing. Yes, I'm editing you out. Only, <laughs> just be big, <laughs> big blanks. <laughs> Ryan, uh, what's your thoughts? It went from me talking hour, again. It went from an
2: hour to uh, 20, 55 20, minutes. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thanks for letting me contribute today. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but
0: yeah, so that's our uh, little quick topic discussion. We've already talked about Hefref and some other stuff this month, so I want to yeah. make sure we kind of talk about it again. Follow up.
1: Maybe some as-needed mm-hmm. for verapamil.
0: Yes, maznid frozmin, make sure they're monitoring their weight, daily weight checks, weekly weight checks, all that jazz.
2: So, would this um, would this patient be someone you would see like coming I guess for pharmac we said pharmacotherapy management in a cool setting like where you work, but um, the I guess my question is when is like a cardiologist kind of defaulted to versus trying to manage this patient in more of a Primary care, is kind so of I would
0: hope this patient is seeing a cardiologist. Um, but like we've seen in our clinic, not all of them do right. that. And so, if you are managing, I mean, you could technically manage it in primary care if you had to. But I would think a cardiologist should be involved in
2: this for sure, right? If possible, especially if they've had hospitalizations or something yeah. like that. That yeah. would be-
0: you would definitely want um, the, uh, the cardiologist involved for sure, if possible. But it all comes down to what the patient can afford, what they're willing to go to, who they feel comfortable with, all that. So if you have to, definitely important for primary care to understand how to treat as well.
2: I think that's the big impact we can make too. It's having the phone call saying, this is what we just went through with the patient and this is what's going on.
0: Yeah, for sure. Shared decision making, like Amanda <laughs> said, with all the healthcare professionals, including the patient too. What else? Anything else on this patient? Anything else we didn't talk about? Is that it? Is that
1: a wrap? I think that's a wrap.
0: I think that's the first uh, topic discussion that preceptors ever done on on recording. Nice. Yeah, it's never been done before until today, people. <laughs> you heard it here, and you could tell it was improv by on us having to look up multiple things. <laughs>
2: that's Dreams came true today.
0: Yeah, honestly, I feel good about it. I feel this, like this puts me in the running for uh, greatest preceptor of all time.
1: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. All right, make sure that's you tell exactly the, what I was Make saying. sure you tell the school that.
0: All right, y'all. Well, appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, I hope this was somewhat helpful, not too much of a review. But um, yeah, so if you guys like the podcast, and uh, you make sure you subscribe and throw us a comment, a rating, all that fun stuff. We appreciate it greatly. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to email us. Um, Cole will be back with me soon. And um, we will, uh, this has been a really busy month, so we haven't had too many episodes. So I apologize about that. But we will get back on track in June and start cranking them out. So thank you guys so much for everything and for listening, supporting, all that. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one.